Hello, and welcome to the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This is the show that's all about pioneers. We believe that the business world is stuck in a dangerous comfort zone of short-term thinking, living on past glories, and running from disruption. That's bad for them, bad for their teams, and bad for society as a whole. We can do better. Pioneer leadership is the antidote. Pioneers play a long game. They challenge the status quo and they chase a better and more purposeful future for all of us. They're also great to hang around with and important to learn from. Now more than ever, we need to be adopting pioneer leadership in organisations both large and small. My name is Philip Clark, and in this episode I was joined by Andrew Wordsworth, co-founder and managing partner of Sustainable Ventures. We explored the upsides and downsides of having an insatiable appetite for risk, why changing the world requires you to leave corporate life, and how he came to be the poster child for the UK crowdfunding community. Enjoy the episode. My guest today has spent the last 20 years quietly building the future, chalking up an enviable series of firsts in the process and blazing a trail which a whole generation of social entrepreneurs are now benefiting from. With a background in chemical engineering and the energy industry, he understood the gritty reality of big oil and the commercial models, political decisions and physical infrastructure that underpinned it. About 20 years ago, he jumped out of the comfort of big energy and strategy consulting to focus his career and his life on the low-carbon and sustainability movement. Now, along the way, he's proven business models for pioneering clean tech, for convincing the world's largest investors to buy into the low-carbon economy. He's originated the venture developer model in this field and launched the UK's first sustainable accelerator fund. So whether it's in clean generation, distribution, mobility, storage, or built environment, my guest today has always taken the path less traveled, pioneering as he's gone. He was also the first investor in my personalized coffee venture back in 2015 and one of my first clients when I started out in innovation consulting in the early noughties. So I have plenty to thank him for. Welcome to the show, Andrew Wordsworth. Great to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So uh, we first met about it's about 20 years ago and you, you haven't been able to shake me off yet. Many of the venture launches that I'm most proudest to have been involved in were projects I worked on for you. And Every time I take a look at what you and your team are doing at Sustainable Ventures, I get excited and I want to I want to pick up the phone. Even in prepping for today, I saw another venture that I'm pretty excited about. And it's because you're constantly chasing the, the next big and important thing in this sustainability and, and low carbon field. You're taking on massive challenges and, and using business to disrupt for good. Now, you've been involved in founding or scaling an awful lot of cool businesses, and, and I'm sure we'll jump into those and jump around a bit today. But before we get into all of that, Let's understand a little bit about kind of the making of, of you. In your early years, were you the, the diligent son or were you a reckless disruptor then? So um, probably was a, um, a sort of fairly well-behaved student and, um, yeah, went through um, what appeared to be sort of quite conventional route, you know, O-levels and A-levels, uh, Cambridge, straight into industry. So, you know, I think um, I definitely... Uh, I think I'd probably put my head down. I think one of the things I would um, uh, sort of reflect on is, I guess, the sort of the approach I took to that. And maybe that sort of uh, underpins some of my sort of tolerance for risk these days. But uh, I used to say that, uh, you know, I would often, you know, I was either going to get a straight A or a fail. I was, you know, getting a B or in, in an assignment or getting a kind of 2-1 or 2-2 two, two was just, I reflected it didn't really seem to be of interest to me. So you would often take quite an unconventional route. And actually, you may say, yeah, public examinations are not the appropriate place to to take those kind of things. But you definitely was uh, was of that, that uh, you know, if I could leave a teacher scratching his head about how I'd had gone, and gone about a different way of doing something, uh, then that was sort of seen as a, a victory, I think. I remember you saying uh, kind of all or nothing. You took a high-risk strategy. It was going to be, you know, glory or, 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 or the opposite. I know uh, kind of your your earliest kind of entrepreneurial type activity uh, was, I think, around Young Enterprise, and lots of people get introduced to the field in that way. And that obviously flicked some sort of switch in your mind. But after university, you went into 
kind of big industry. So explain that a little bit. Yeah, and um, as I say, it's one of those sort of contradictory things that um, I think, you know, I, I sort of left in 1994. Um, so, you know, if you, would, if you did chemical engineering, by and large, you went into engineering. There are a few people who went into, you know, accountancy or consultancy. Um, but generally, you know, those were the jobs that were available. Those were the, that's, that, that's the route you took. Uh, and it was, in some senses, quite a uh, yeah, conventional side of things. But um, I guess my motivations were I wanted to sort of build experience and um, so working on the shop floor. So my first job was down at Forley. And you know, to this day, I learned an awful lot about working with people because I was a troubleshooter as a chemical engineer. And that involved dealing with, you know, shift workers, dealing with tradesmen, dealing with people in the labs, dealing with an awful lot of people with different skills. And um, I think, you know, when I made my career choice, being an entrepreneur was not really a thing back then. You know, that, that was not a, something you did straight from university. And again, I think that was, you know, the thinking was do that, get a good grounding and, and pick up a whole load of, a whole load of skills that, um, you know, to this day, still very useful. So you started with what was probably the world's biggest or one of the biggest businesses in, in SO, did, did two or three years there, found your way into consulting. And your route in consulting, I think, was different than mine in that you had real skills uh, and hard, hard expertise that could be applied in the field. You worked, I think, both with ADL and with Bain. From what I understand, that took you into some unusual environments and you got involved in some unusual, unusual stuff. Tell us a little about that. Yes, yeah, so after sort of three years or so it, uh, in a very comfortable environment down at uh, Foley in the New Forest, and it's a great, great place, um, I kind of realized that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life you know, in the New Forest. And then you could see people who'd been, you know, had never worked anywhere apart from the refinery. So, so yeah, took the first of sort of, potentially sort of big steps um, and moved to join to ADL. Um, and the, the great thing there was ADL was quite a, um, a collegiate kind of a, a, um, or kind of almost academic, I think it was described, in terms of how it operated. So even at a junior analyst level, you were responsible for finding your own work. And um, um, and the way it was you know, organized, it was kind of America and the rest of the world. And so I ended up building a very good relationship with uh, the, the head of the kind of non U.S. practice, who was based in Singapore, and was selling a lot of lot of work in in Asia and uh, South Africa, and yeah, so I got to travel. I uh, did uh, lots of time in Durban uh, and was uh, doing pipeline economics, um, which was a bit of a departure from uh, from refining. And um, yeah, so one of the things uh, about sort of the Asian crash in some ninety eight, ended up uh, working for. A UK person uh, working for uh, the Abu Dhabi government to buy two Korean oil refineries and associated petrol stations, which um, is not something you, you know, if you'd asked me when, when I left university, is that what you'd be doing in, in four years' time? Probably not. That's fun. Life, life experiences you don't anticipate. So you were, you were, you know, an energy industry insider, whether you intended to be or not, your success and your expertise and your experiences were all oriented in that world. And you jumped on, I think, from AD Little to Bain and Bain Lab, uh, kind of staying in the same field. And you, from what I understand, were, were their guy with, with hard skills. You were there for a, for, you know, a, a while before, before jumping out into entrepreneurship. So this is like, what, early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. So it was, um, I joined uh, the day after the NASDAQ peaked uh, from the dot-com boom. So um, yes, um, Apologies, I don't think the two were connected, but uh, yeah, it was certainly, uh, of course, you didn't realise it was the end of the era, but uh, it's, it was uh, at the time. I remember that. So, and I remember I'd, uh, I'd left consulting. I was frustrated that every consultancy, apart from the one I was working in, were doing labs and dot-com accelerators. And, you know, there was a generation who were getting to play with some really interesting new business models, some quite reckless, some quite predictably value-generating uh, the firm I was with, PA Consulting, was much more conservative, and, and that wasn't their world. I left and started my first venture. You were doing stuff at Bain Lab, but then soon after, you made a big switch. You know, something got very purposeful in your mind and in your world. And this is, I think, when you started kind of waking up more to what you could achieve and the plays you could make in what now we'd maybe call net zero. But in those days, it was all about climate change and, and the low carbon movement. Tell me about that that quickening. And what led you to look to leave that corporate environment and step into an entirely different environment with Carbon Trust? 
Yeah, so my father uh, ran his own business. Uh, he was a quantity surveyor and um, and set out you know, from a very early age. I can't actually remember him working for anybody other than himself. So, uh, and that, and you mentioned um, Young Enterprise, and um, he had a really enjoyable six months and quite successful in sort of Young Enterprise terms in terms of building a kind of award-winning business and, and was the MD for that business. Coupled then with the, I guess, that sort of interest in kind of early stage um, and kind of growth businesses it came about when I joined Bain Lab and, and was getting into that kind of deal screening and, and so on. Um, and um, I think you're right, it was, it was one of those sort of moments of saying, well, do I want to stay as a, a consultant? Um, and there are those people who said, if I'd done so, I'd probably be far richer than I was today. Um, or do I want to, this is a kind of a, a kind of key pivot moment. Um, and I sort of put, you know, energy experience, realizing that, um, you know, if you want to get in startups, then refining is not the best option. But building that with, um, I'd come across a company called um, Future Forest, which became the carbon neutral company. And um, yeah, it's put all that together and actually sort of said, oh, climate change. And this looks like something that's interesting and new. And therefore, uh, after some discussion uh, with, with my wife, I decided to, to basically uh, leave Bain uh, and join a, a new organization called the Carbon Trust. Um, I think it was about the 12th employee into into the Carbon Trust and this was in 2002 and that was really a sort of you know classic sort of Harvey salary but uh, invest and, and think um, but the view there was that, you know it's really I think I'll join the, a couple of years and then um, given I've got this sort of Stratcon and uh, you know commercial experience I'll find some clever technology that's coming out of you know Imperial or UCL and I can help sort of commercialize that so really it was a very intended to be a very short term a uh, couple of years assignment just to sort of learn the industry get the contacts and um, as you know in the end end up staying there for for nine years and again forged a completely different career path uh, within that company within the carbon trust to the one I'd uh, probably joined up to do which is a sort of internal strategy consultant now what a lot of people perhaps might not know certainly some of our uh, millennial listeners is that you know, the, the moment we're having now around the climate crisis isn't our first go at this. Actually, in the early 2000s, in particular, the Blair government got very serious about the climate crisis, made some very significant uh, impacts in terms of investment, in terms of market mechanisms. And, and Carbon Trust was really established, if I understand right, to make business sense of climate change. And it was a, a quango. It was there to execute some of the interventions in market which we needed to make to address our obligations under under various carbon commitments. I think it did a lot of good. You you were inside it. We worked on some stuff together, but you were there a long time achieving quite a lot. There was then a fallow period after that. Um and and you know we're now things are picking up again. But this was kind of the first big move. So you've got this this interesting aggregate trends. You've got, you know, technology startups and and this sense that actually we can build, we can create, we can venture, which was quite a cultural shift in the UK, I think, compared to where the UK had been. We'd never had this heritage of entrepreneurship in quite the way that the US had. But then there was this growing awareness of the importance of, of, of addressing the carbon risk that was ahead for all of us. So you went to Carbon Trust. We met, I think, just when you stepped into building out the case for Carbon Trust Enterprises. Tell us about that, because I think that's really, it was a formative thing for me, but you know, tell me about that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, so the, so the Carbon Trust was, it was formed at a very, very exciting time. And um, I mean, it's interesting to sort of look back. Some of the first things I did uh, with, um, I actually ended up writing, a, a co-writing an academic paper with a guy, uh, Professor Michael Grubb, um, who is, and still is one of the kind of leading uh, kind of climate change academics in the in the field, and um, yes, I'm sometimes extremely proud of this uh, this academic paper because I uh, was doing an analysis of all the different policy interventions and so on. Um, but you know, and I think just before you met, we had uh, run the what's called the carbon management pilot, and you know, carbon management is now what large corporates do, and that was with corporates in the public sector. Yeah, I'd, I'd worked on supporting some of the the technology that called a low carbon innovation program support and um yeah and that we talk these days about building ecosystems and the one thing that's un say unique about the sector but, but but very very acute in the sector is you have to have a lot of stakeholders involved you have to have corporates who are well 
in our case, sometimes acquiring companies that we've developed and solutions we've developed, but also customers and channels to market. You've got to involve government. You know, this is not, um, this doesn't exist. It's not like sort of ad tech. It, it doesn't exist outside of, of the world of, of government, local government as well. So, you know, a lot of what, you know, trying to build these kind of ecosystems is bringing all these different people together. And again, Carbon Trust, I think, you know, cottoned onto that fact quite early on. So it was sort of a quango, you know, sort of not government, not private sector. It was a bit of a mix and sort of sitting in this kind of chameleon side of things. And so, yeah, so Enterprises was obviously was the, the, the role I did for most of my time there. But uh, in terms of just, you know, demonstrating that low carbon businesses could be a success, could create value, could attract uh, private sector money to, to scale. And, you know, a lot of that was, um, and you might remember, is, is, you know, trying to pull together the kind of the carbon case and the carbon saving case, which is why the Carbon Trust, you know, could invest and provide seed investment, but equally had to make the commercial case to people like HSBC and, and Threadneedle and um, Mitsui Babcock and, and, and our partners that we pulled into those ventures. And again, it's just that, that sort of, del- you know, you had to walk quite a tightrope in terms of how you, how you managed to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm really interested and I'm keen that you walk through some of the ventures that you originated there because I'm sure that you, there are things that you learned in your early ventures, which meant that your later ventures were perhaps more successful or had a bigger impact. I certainly, it was an interesting experience for me. I remember spending a weekend modeling the, the carbon value of a cow and dairy farms, and um, that wasn't what I thought I'd be doing with my consulting career, but pretty eye-opening. And I loved the fact that there was so much virgin territory for you to point at. You know, the, We were looking at, at, at seabeds and how you can exploit crown estates. We were looking at dairy farms and, and what can you do there. And you were building quite experimental businesses, it wasn't necessarily about proving individual technologies. And I suspect that there were others doing that. But you were building businesses. And I think that idea of triple bottom line, you know, this was quite a new thing, this idea of pulling together an ecosystem and using businesses to demonstrate a better way forward. I think that was really interesting. That was interesting for me. I mean, give us a sense of maybe some of those early ventures and what you learned from them and where they took you to. Yeah, so I think um, I think when we met, our first sort of um, I think pipe cleaner project, uh, to use the jargon, was a company called uh, Connective Energy, uh, which is sort of waste heat, um, and um, it had actually come out of one of the um, the carbon management projects that we were doing, which was basically just sort of taking you know waste heat from power stations or um, brickworks and stuff like that, and and basically t- transporting that to nearby like food factories, for example, who needed sort of lower grade heat to lower temperature heat and therefore rather than you know throwing this heat up into the atmosphere you can actually reuse it and avoid fossil fuels so quite a simple concept and you know i think some of the best businesses are you know you sort of you can stick, stick on one, one bit of paper and say here yeah. and that was so yeah it's a really interesting one um unfortunately uh the reason you haven't heard of connective energy is because it doesn't exist anymore because actually on the sur- what was on the surface was quite a simple business model ended up as um basically i can summarize it waste heat has no value unless somebody asks to buy it in which case it has you know as much value as you want and we just couldn't get the the sort of the arbitrage and the partnerships to to work it was a very complicated execution you were dealing with two corporates both working on different timescales and budget timescales and you know it was undercapitalized it was i mean lots of things that you know if i was doing again we could go there i mean again that that market opportunity is still there and sometimes you know i think sometimes i think maybe maybe if we could do that again, maybe there's a, there's a really big business to, to be had. But that that really, um, I would say, we, we didn't lose that much money on that one. But it, it proved that we could bring, you know, we got investment, external investment into it. And um, yeah, gave it a good go. And that, that allowed us to go to um, InSource, which is the AD, the anaerobic digestion business that you sort of started on. I think you know, that one... Turned out from an analysis of cows that you were doing a sort of paper exercise, you know that that manifested in terms of a, uh, a kind of an integrated, uh, basically supplying heat and uh, and power to a uh, sandwich making factory in, in Newport, and actually that, that plants there, and again you can go and kick the tires. So it's that you know success in this field is often something 
happens you know it's not a it's not a sort of movement of electrons it's a you know it's an actual operating plant and you know and interestingly that uh, got absorbed into um, SSE but you know that hopefully demonstrated the kind of the business case um, and other people then came in and, and sort of have rolled out anaerobic digestions across the UK I think you know, sort of seven or eight years later. Um, so again, it was it was that sort of yeah, trying to prove these businesses, show that this could be done. But obviously, with Carbon Trust being a sort of mission-driven business, actually, other people delivering it was you know what wasn't the end of the world if we could open those markets up. So I'm really interested in that culture because, as you say, it wasn't a for-profit venture accelerator necessarily. You were trying to create new markets. You were trying to nudge businesses into behaving differently and recognizing that social purpose can come with commercial return. When you were doing kind of the the early pipe cleaner stuff, the the connected energy stuff, and that didn't play out the way you'd wanted, I'm really interested in the culture that was in that organisation at the time because the expectation that set of you and your ability to fail, learn from it, come back stronger, you, you don't always get to do that in organisations. So, how how easy was that? From from what you recall, what was the response to that? You know that that first project and you know, how you managed to then, and then what was the response to the subsequent projects? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, well, reflecting on it, I, I talked about this sort of balancing act and um, the Carbon Trust Board who signed off on these investments and, and our business plan, you know, had everybody from kind of government reps to people from industry, investments, lots of different academics. It was a, a very eclectic board to some extent, but it reflected the need to have those kind of triple bottom line to have that sort of balance between kind of mission and and financial viability. I say because these were sort of very experimental markets. Then you know, clearly we were you know motivated. Everybody wants to make make money, but a lot of it was kind of a, you know it was more towards the kind of strategic end of kind of classic sort of corporate venture capital. But I think the to my mind, this is all culminated. I think we did 10 ventures in, in total in low-carbon workplace, which is probably our kind of swan song for myself and uh, Susanna, who, of course, you, you, you know well, which was a, a kind of property fund. It's, um, I think it's about 350 million uh, commercial property fund, uh, partnership with uh, Threadneedle, uh, Stanhope, a very uh, high-quality developer, and Carbon Trust. And, and again, we were bringing the kind of carbon expertise and the technology. Stanhope were bringing the development expertise and Threadneedle had obviously ran property funds and, and sort of did the fundraising side of things. And that that's probably, as a fund has outperformed the benchmark, probably by 2x in terms of how, how that operated. But I, in some ways that took all the sort of knowledge that we've learned from partnership renewables, from Connective, from you know, Future Blends, all, all the sort of, how to and know how it sort of you know it culminated in this thing that that actually financially more than compensated for all the the, the losses if you like along the way so you know that's a portfolio theory i mean that's the whole thing you, you've got to you know not everyone's going to win but you you just need you know two or three to sort of uh to, to smash it out of the park and, and suddenly uh you're there so look, what I think is really interesting as well is that there have been established corporate venture capital approaches, but you were venture developing. You were identifying, originating, building, scaling, partnering to put in the market businesses which weren't being put in the market by anyone else. Some form of market failure, some a lack of insight, a lack of, whatever the reasons. Um, I think that's really interesting. A lot of the work we do about pioneer leadership comes back to this fundamental principle that pioneers build the future and you were doing it in a systematic way or at least you were developing those systematic approaches to doing it so you did it uh, at carbon trust for, for eight nine years as you say and then the opportunity came the time came for you to start doing this independently so tell us a, a little bit about what you had in mind when you started sustainable ventures your current business what was it that you had in mind what were you hoping to achieve how clear was the the end goal that you set out with? Yeah, so, um, so you say we, we sort of had looked at, you know, we're constantly looking at the marketplace and um, and sort of looking for these kind of opportunities. And, uh, yeah, you'll, you know, it's sort of a slightly a sort of an entrepreneurial curse is that you can kind of sometimes we'll be walking along the road and constantly looking at everything that you could improve, that you could do something different. And, you know, and you sort of mind spins, and you know, I could do this. And, and one of the sort of, 
big sort of insights that came out is that you know, climate change, just about everything we do impacts climate change. So everything uses energy or uses materials and those materials use energy to produce. So it's, it's, What's interesting at the moment is sustainability. You sort of say, well, what, what, what are your sectors? What are your verticals? And we, we have our sort of five fo focused verticals because they're the ones that where you make the biggest impact. So it's your transport and building, built environment and food and agri-tech and stuff like that. But there is almost no shortage of opportunity. And particularly if we're going to move towards net zero, just about everything has to change to some extent or the other. And, and that's realizing that, that you know, this was a sector that, although it was quite niche, there were, nobody was sort of doing what we're doing. So my uh, co-founder, Chris Morris, took the opportunity to say, look, we've got, we've got this methodology, we've got this approach, there's unlimited opportunities that we can do. Let's go out and start, you know, creating benches and spinning them out. So, you know, so the original concept um, and the original sort of bit was basically venture development and um, you're creating, you know, eCar Club was the first one we worked on. Sustainable Home Survey, which in Power Vault. So, you know, you could pick up these opportunities in terms of developing these new sort of technologies or, or approaches or systems. And, you know, it seemed like everybody else was in kind of fintech or tech in general. And therefore, there was this sort of great opportunity to go in unlimited field, unlimited sets of opportunities, only constrained by the, the need to, uh, to, you know, stay focused as far as possible. So that was, that was kind of, you know, that was sort of where we thought, and we thought this is a great opportunity. And at the time, I thought, you know, we'd just come through the, the financial crash, so 2011, moving into 2012, thinking actually, yes, you know, this, this sector is only going to grow, it's going to be important, more important. Um, and um, yeah, so that, that was sort of, what we did, um, you know, I took a, a redundancy package from the Carbon Trust. Uh, it was going through some changes due to the change of government at the time and used that to basically give both of us, you know, said, well, we'll give this 12 months and see if we can see if we can make a go of it. And uh, yeah, that was uh, nine years ago. So uh, yeah, we must have just about bootstrapped it through to that point. So. Well, I think it's interesting because you didn't, you know, you didn't have a, a friendly investor with 100 million quid saying, Go and play and see what happens. You you built this from the ground up, and you've had some successes that you've scaled next to to fund the ongoing growth of the venture development business. So, what's interesting, you're you're no longer sitting in an environment where you're funded by government in the way that you were with uh, CTEL. So, what is it um, when you think about what your organisation is for? How do you balance out the the social purpose around sustainability and and climate change with the need to both make a return to fund your teams, but make a return to grow and make a return so you can have more influence. How do you balance off these different goals and how do you prioritize? Yeah, so Sustainable Ventures you know, has, a, has a vision, uh, which we've had from the start, which is around commercial solutions to the problems of climate change and resource scarcity. And that defines exactly what we do. Um, and, you know, of our sort of six values, the two core ones are sustainable and commercial. And we don't do things that are sustainable, but can't, you know, aren't commercially sustainable. And we don't do things that are commercial, but aren't delivering against those two missions. And actually, you know, as it turns out, there's an awful lot of opportunities that do tick both those boxes. So the, the, the issue comes when you have to compromise between the two. Or if you're, I give the example, or if you're saying, I have a sustainable gin distillery because we buy renewable energy. Well, renewable energy in general costs more than whatever they say, costs more, if you're going to do it properly, than ordinary energy. So therefore, you've added to your cost base, therefore, you're less commercial, therefore, you've, you've made that trade-off. Not say we walk away from that, particularly as investors, we can do that much more, but that wouldn't get past our sort of ideation stage. We wouldn't spend any time developing it. But... I'm not saying you can have your, you know, you can you can have your cake and eat it, and that's that's what you're looking for. And sticking to that, you start to get into just, I would say, talking to an investor, and just look, you just know, you you can just tell if a business is delivering on both those things. If you're using less of a resource, your cost base is likely to be less. If you are saving energy, you're delivering value to the to the end user. So just taking that that mindset. I think it's, you know, it, 
maybe it's maybe a bit slow you know it's taken us maybe you know, 15 years to sort of really get on top of that but it, it just it built into everybody and everybody all, all employees understand that those are the things we do and things that we don't do so you uh, were an early advocate and user of crowdfunding platforms that, that scaled and you were quite visible on those platforms and successful in raising money and perceived as a, a real success story for investors who've come along and backed some of your ventures. Let's talk a little bit maybe about eCar because uh, there was lots of stuff kind of, perhaps I'll ask you to introduce eCar and talk about kind of the reality of where you found yourself you know, around the Greek crisis um, because you were the first, I think the first crowdfunded exit so you are the poster child or certainly were the poster child for crowdfunded ventures tell us a bit about ecar and, and the journey to exit there yeah so um so ecar was the um actually the first business we um, we sort of launched i mean the idea came about so uh, the original kind of london-based car sharing organization uh was uh, called streetcar and zipcar had acquired them i think in 2010 for a very sort of uh, time yeah it's a very good exit um, at the time. We'd also seen that um, uh, the Leaf had been launched, the Nissan Leaf, which is a kind of first proper EV. So putting those two things together with some sort of understanding of kind of total cost of ownership and the kind of real sort of Bain type analysis, basically we said, look, if we can combine electric vehicles and car sharing and put them together, and that was EV, that was eCar Club. You know, with our sort of view that there was a big push towards sort of electrification, there was sort of lots of sort of subsidies that, that equalised the cost for electric vehicles. It was a good way for you know manufacturers to sort of showcase electric vehicles to get lots of people driving them. So you know, for every EV we put down, we had sort of thirty members who then drove an EV and got used to driving that, and that was you know potentially would then go on and, and buy. Uh, an electric vehicle. So there are lots of sort of very strong drivers to why you, why you do that. Um, and also nobody else was doing that. So um, the competitors, um, there's a big sort of car sharing opportunity as well as this big sort of uh, electric vehicle. Um, so yeah, we, we crowdfunded that in uh, 2013, uh, closed that one, and then went through, uh, we had uh, Centrica Ignite put some, some money in, and Angel put some money in. And um, yeah, and then, as you said, we exited that literally four years to the day if we formed Sustainable Ventures uh, to Europe Car, became part of Europe Car's mobility uh, operations. And um, it, yes, it was, it was great. Um, it was a real privilege to um, be, um, you know, the UK's first uh, crowdfunded exit. Absolutely, you know, it was an absolute pleasure, you know, emailing, uh, you know, remittance and paying, paying the shareholders back. But uh, you're right, you referred to the greed crisis and this is sort of, um, you know, don't know. Sometimes you, have, you know, there's a little bit of luck. But Europe Car were originally private. They were actually going through a flotation, and um, at the same time as the kind of Greek crisis, so the Euronext was was you know going all over the place. And um, as we understand it, there were three French companies that were looking to float in that particular week. Two of the others dropped out, and Europe Car decided to push ahead. And clearly, as we then found out that if they hadn't have floated, they didn't actually have the cash to buy e-car so very nervous a couple of weeks waiting for that to happen but yeah it, it was there and uh, you know the sense of relief um that we weren't sort of personally bankrupt uh, the, we were actually had had our exit and uh <laughs> and uh you know some some change in the bank uh that's uh yeah very um Still, still, sort of not quite wake up in cold shivers thinking about it, but because uh. <laughs> you guys were all in, you, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd built uh, around this lead kind of part of your portfolio, and you needed it, the exit needed to be timed. It needed to be right so you could continue to grow, continue to scale. I think what's really interesting, though, you know, you did your crowdfunding with eCar in 2013. It's one thing listening to this towards the tail end of 2020, and I drive an EV, and it's not that unusual, and yet it's still, of course, not normal. But charging infrastructure is improving by leaps and bounds. There, there is a normality to EV now, and it's set perhaps by government policy expectations. It's set by a decade's worth of trailblazers. You were building a business in this you know, before it was mainstream, and that's one of the interesting things that pioneers do. They have the intuition about the stuff that's going to scale, and they build the businesses which inspire others to scale things. And I think that was one of the really... I'm, I'm into cars. I'm a, I'm a petrol head usually, but I was really intrigued when you when you did eCar because there were all these 
emerging kind of edge signals. You know, you could see local authorities wanting to get involved in car clubs and car sharing. You could see manufacturers wanting to be able to test the waters and play a little bit, some leading, some not. And I love the way you drew that ecosystem together. And in some ways, you describe doing that in Carbon Trust. You're doing that from a, a private and independent venture development business. I think it's really interesting. So, so you did eCar. You've grown a, a, a bigger portfolio. One of the things, I think, is your workspaces businesses. Do you want to tell us a bit about where that came from? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. So it, it's around 2015. Just probably the year before that, we'd become uh, kind of accidental landlords because we'd obviously growing a portfolio of our companies and um, a couple of uh, railway arches came up near, uh, near London Bridge and it was probably three times the size we actually needed, but um, we got to, you know, Network Rail, who owned the arches, said, well, make us an offer because, you know, we don't want to do anything else with these things. So um, we made an offer thinking they'll never say yes, and they, they did. So we ended up with, um, yeah, say four four railway arches uh, just behind Southwark Town Hall, which we still run today. And, um, yeah, moved in, had AstroTurf and, and uh, brought some greenhouses in because, again, we were, yeah, we were absolutely honest, we were completely skinned because we'd been putting all the, all the money into sort of e-car and propping that up. But, you know, did that on the phone. But also then uh, through our sort of network, just said, well, we've got the spare space. Do you want to hire a desk for like 200 quid a month looking for some space? And so people said, oh, yeah, we'll come along. And kind of word got around. And before you knew it, there were sort of 90 or so people all working in this uh, this kind of slightly scruffy, dark <laughs> uh bridges and sort of it went from there because we sort of went oh, hang on this is not a bad business model is it you know we had a sort of themed you know not you know it, it, it's yeah, co-working obviously was coming through and sort of shared desks but but this idea of having similarly minded companies companies that were aligned with our kind of vision were tackling climate change were commercial were growing were attracting investment and new people so yeah we basically sort of took most of the proceeds from from eCar and kind of reinvested that into our first sort of Bankside One site, uh, which is a converted, um, converted warehouse. Uh, it was owned by Landsec. There's now a big hole in the ground because they've uh, not knocked it down. But that was our, um, our kind of first uh, development. And that was, I think we got something like 250 or 300 people were working there at its peak. And I'm now sat in um, Bankside Two, uh, which is... Uh, Pre-crisis, there were about 450 people, uh, again, in sort of 50 companies, all in the kind of sustainability sector. It's a, you know, it's a great community. It, it's companies that we know, that we work with in, in a variety of different ways. But it's, um, again, it's all, you know, it's bound by that common common purpose. And that, that creates something that's, you know, very different feel to to, to workspaces. And um, so particularly, you know, like you know, sort of peer-to-peer support. So um, I've just come off a, a webinar on um, EMI option schemes, and we had uh, about thirty-five companies on that. Some of them tenants, some of them part of our wider programs. But but it's that kind of okay. I'll I'll share. You know, happy to share our expertise in having done this ourselves, and sort of pass that on to those companies. I always found it really interesting if I'd come in to see you, just seeing the organisations that you were kind of hosting in in. Uh, your facility. I remember seeing Toast at one point, who who you know a beer business made out of waste bread. I remember seeing Winnow. People know them for cutting food waste. And I remember seeing, I think Landsec maybe were in there. And, and there were all sorts of interesting businesses and a kind of a a hub of activity, a hubbub of activity, I suppose, happening. That's really interesting because it was a physical manifestation of those ecosystems, I suppose, that need to form for this stuff to come together. But the physical environment does create a a hothouse type sense i think i I used to find it really interesting yeah i mean it's europe's largest cluster of sustainable startups which is probably a reflection of the sector at the moment because um you know 50 companies is is not a huge by uh, sort of tech standards but you know i think it's you're right it's i I talked earlier about you've got to bring kind of government so you know we have the gla on here on a regular basis so one of our sort of big uh, big clients we've got you know People from uh, DFT, for example, can, you know, can bring people here. It's a sort of an interesting thing to do. We've got corporates come in. We've got investors. It, it's, it's creating that kind of that sort of mixing pot. And um, you mentioned Winnow. I mean, one of my stories about that. Uh, we used to have a company called Cheeky Panda who did uh, bamboo toilet roll, and um, IKEA, who were a big 
client of, of, of Winnow, they were just going on a tour around the building. It's kind of interesting, and you've got lots of people soldering things together, and it's um, you know, and they walked past Cheeky Panda, and it was like, oh, oh, what do these guys do? They got into a conversation, and now Cheeky Panda are now a supplier into that area. So that's fantastic. You know, pure sort of not happenstance, um, but you know, you, you're getting those kind of new connections and so on, um, which is a lot easier to do in a physical space when people are, are wandering around. I say that's one of the things. You know, when, when we get through the current situation, getting back to that position where you're creating those those kind of opportunities and um, looking forward to that uh, as we get through this current crisis. So it's interesting because your physical hub becomes essentially a marketplace to bring people into. They can walk around and decide who they, they like to partner with. What what I find interesting is that you've done big business and you've you've worked in the world's biggest businesses. And you originate new fledgling businesses and, and help to accelerate and, and advance businesses that other people originate. So you've kind of done it from both sides. And I, I find it really interesting when you bring those two together. Uh, I know you've um, put something together recently with Schneider, I think. I'm, I'm interested. How do you see those worlds working together? Do they play nicely? Is it is it difficult? How, how do you get the best of both? Yeah, so I'd say one of the things that's really encouraging to see, certainly in the last couple of years, is um, yeah, sort of the recognition of that climate change is a, is something that needs to happen, and sustainability is something that needs to happen. And so, what we're seeing is, is corporates um, are looking to say, okay, how do, what's the best way I can refresh my my own portfolio? How can I move my product and service mix from an unsustainable thing to a sustainable thing? And how do I do that quite quickly? Um, and maybe I would say that because we're in the startup world, one of the best ways you can do that is to find people who have thought about a specific problem and nothing else for the last two, three, four, five years. So they've, they've looked at this. You can, you can pay people to, to look at, um, you know, do, do market scans. And, but actually, if you want to know where, you know, home storage fits into the picture and how that links with sort of, you know, the DNOs and the grid stability and all that kind of stuff, you know, go and talk to PowerVault. Because, you know, they've had 30 people who've done nothing else for the last six years and they really understand the market, they understand, and they're talking to customers and they've been trying to do that. And therefore, you know, what we're starting to see is we, we built this ecosystem of there's probably over 200 companies that we have invested in, founded, uh, provided services to, provided desks to, and that's growing all you know all the time in terms of that, that sort of network. And therefore, we get into that kind of critical scale where there are solutions. You, know, you mentioned Schneider in terms of Schneider's looking at a net zero home challenge. You know, we're aware of where those solutions are, who is developing them, what stage they're at. Um, you know, we're often on first name terms with the the founders because we've you know we've helped them we've we've you know we, they've been part of that community, and therefore it's almost you know what we see the opportunity is, is acting as that intermediary in terms of you know promoting that open innovation, helping people to find solutions to to these sort of big changes that they're going to have to go through. You, know, you mentioned automotive, you know, the, the sort of the the restrictions on on sale of you know petrol and diesel means that people are going to have to go with with electric vehicle at scale. That is going to change all kinds of things in charging and so on. And because we sort of understand how these different parts interact, then you know we're able to sort of work with those companies to sort of okay, identify, find, and support those those solutions. And I think it's a very exciting time. Um, you're seeing lots of announcements of people looking for this. It's quite a cost-effective way for them to you know, to move forwards quickly because the pace does seem to be quickening. What I find really interesting as well, you know, you know my consulting firm works with with you know the world's biggest businesses, and, and uh, I have opportunity often to, to introduce them. Equally, there's a whole generation of really bright employees who are looking to do something purposeful. And again, I keep sending you emails introducing people to you on that side as well because people are excited about this. There's a whole generation who wants to invest their smarts, who wants to invest their time in something which is more than hitting this quarter's numbers. It's about more than making investors wealthier. It's about more than sustaining the status quo. They want to build the future. They want to challenge this comfortable do-nothing culture that is unfortunately quite prevalent in big business. And I think there's What's really interesting is that that since you started um, uh, Sustainable Ventures, you've kind of put your arms around quite a big ecosystem. You know lots of the players, whether large or small. And as a result, that ability to join up and help people mobilize their businesses, whether they're big businesses trying to find specialists, 
or whether they're specialists trying to find a, a partnerships and route to market. I think that's really interesting. What what have um but I imagine it's also exhausting. What have you learned about yourself kind of in, in, in your time you know, leading this organization? What have you what have you found out about yourself? So one of the challenges we're facing at the moment is um, is you know how to scale that. As you remarked, we're seeing kind of new companies that are, are approaching us, or we've, we've been in contact has probably doubled uh, in the last year. We're seeing lots of you know clever uh, you know, research students developing solutions to climate change. Uh, they're not developing you know this is now a big sort of focus for them, and therefore. You know, the demand for our kind of core support services is continuing to grow. And, you know, that's extremely exciting to say, you know, it, it needs to get to the scale. I, you know, I sometimes joke where we don't know everybody or the vast majority of people. And therefore, you know, one of the challenges at the moment, we're, we're recruiting, uh, we've got four job ads out at the moment. There's probably another three or four coming out in the next three months. So we are, you know, by this time next year, the team could be twice its size. And that's been where, you know, we're moving away from being kind of yeah, nimble, yeah, all sat around a table type of things to actually how do we sort of structure, how do we how do we make things efficient, how do we cope with that increased demand? And that's a, like you, you, you know, you, you set up companies because you enjoy as a small startup uh, and actually it starts to get to the point where, you know, we might, we will probably never have a HR department, but it's, it's we, we're on the cusp of that. Um, that's that side of things where you've got to start thinking about how do I sort of professionalize this? How do we sort of create the manager? Um, whilst there's still time, the thing I enjoy most is sort of working on a one on one basis with people who are starting a business, who are going through that journey, who can, you know, you can add, add experience to. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, from a personal level, that's that's quite a quite a challenge because I know that I should be you know thinking about new programs, pulling stuff together, doing business development, but actually secretly you want to be sort of sitting down with Thermalon and helping them think through their grant strategy. If you are by nature a visionary and if you get excited by the rush of scaling something and by seeing something come to market that deserves to be there but isn't there yet, then um, it's difficult to step away from that. Yeah, to take a more removed leadership role, I suspect. Now, I know that you've talked about, and I've read interviews with you, where you've talked about enjoying the troubleshooter part of your role, and that that also plays into why you enjoy hanging out with founders. Uh, getting better, I think, at doing the delegation part of, of your role, I suspect. If we look at the organization now, what is it that you get most satisfaction from? As, as you're building this thing, where do you get your, your sense of success? Where do you reflect on why it feels so good to be doing what you're doing? Yeah, so I think one of the interesting new challenges we've got at the moment is it's moving away from kind of individual venture and uh, the sort of thinking a lot about solving that one particular problem, but to kind of new products and services um, that we can sort of maximise our impact through supporting a wider cohort of ventures. So we talked about the corporate side of things. So understanding how that can help multiple ventures and how we can help multiple corporates you know looking back uh, on the accelerator fund uh, and the investment fund we've now made 22 investments uh, from three funds we're about to raise the fourth but you know we're using that experience to say okay how do we then move to the next stage um, and we will be uh, raising a, a an early stage VC fund using that kind of experience because that, that that's a gap in the market but that's not a gap in the market for Smart air bricks, it's a gap in the market for finance that can cover and can help those people on, on the way. And you know, it, it, if you look at workspaces, again, it's great. We, we're now at sort of 50 and 450 people. We've obviously got to get through this crisis because it's not uh, not a particularly challenging sector at the moment. Um, but you know, helping to reinvent the products we've got through that, introducing flexible working packages, recognizing that... Um, you know, actually, we can increase the number of, of businesses and companies that we work with in the space. You know, whilst keeping the same floor space, and that's beneficial because, as I say, you come back to it, is expanding that ecosystem. So, trying to work out how we do that um, is still—it's an entrepreneurial challenge in a different sense. So, it's still problem solving. It's trying to sort things out. It's trying to come up with new ideas. You know, potentially coming up with things that that you can't just transport from. You know 
what textiles does into an into an accelerator program. There are differences. There are things about the sector that are, are, are not the same as, as writing a you know building a, a website or an app. You know, there's lots of different challenges, and therefore there's no no particular solution. On the other hand, balancing that against you know, I think you just call it lift and drop. Look at what people are doing in other sectors, adapt it because that makes it easy to communicate to investors and so on. So there's there's lots of stuff going on. We're not. Um, a slight curse in that any time there's a, a gap in the schedule, we go off and do something new. But um, but I think it's it's reflecting that you know this sector is taking off. There's no doubt about it. This is you know, it's had a decade in the wilderness. Um, we probably started SV arguably five years too early, but hey, timing's everything. But it does feel like uh, voters, investors, you know, people understand when we talk about sort of oh, we commercial solutions to climate change. We people don't look at us puzzled and go is that an app um you know they go oh yes i've, I've heard about that and uh, you're looking forward to redoing my house with this government grant and it, it's that kind of stuff that it's a it's a you know it's, it's great to see that, that momentum building well andrew I'm, I'm really excited as you know about the potential for you and the sustainable ventures team you know both for the businesses you're launching and growing but also because um exactly as you describe the structural impact you're having, you're seeding businesses which change expectations and which normalize behaviors that we're all going to have to get very familiar with. Proving what's possible, challenging the biggest and ugliest organizations around us to step up and to build this better future that we all need. I, I know this story's only just begun. Uh, I look forward to everything that you've got coming. I want to thank you for joining me today on Pioneers Wanted. Brilliant. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Ah, well, that was cool. It's always great to catch up with Andrew. And it's very easy to get caught up in the excitement of, of all the pioneering ventures they're accelerating. I do encourage you to go and have a look at the Sustainable Ventures portfolio. Uh, there's some great stuff they are involved in. If you want to follow Andrew on Twitter, then he's at SVDP underscore Andrew. The business is Sustainable VDP on Twitter. That's at Sustainable VDP. And to explore their portfolio and workplaces and much more, go online to sustainableventures.co.uk. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like, subscribe and review us. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brillianthunch.com. Mm-hmm.